Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Cersei Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Joining me today is Thomas Fickley. Thomas holds a BA and a master's in history, writing his master's thesis on the history of American educational philosophy. He's on the board of directors for the Mars Hill Audio Journal. Thomas has taught history, philosophy, government, and literature, as well as coached numerous sports for 10 years at boarding schools and day schools. He's a native of Charlottesville, Virginia, where he is the founder and headmaster of St. Dunstan's Academy, a new boys boarding school. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Brandon. Thank you for having me on. Really excited to be here. So Thomas and I met uh, last week at the Cersei Regional Conference in Columbus, Ohio. We were lucky enough to have Ken Myers there, who uh, is is in the same neck of the woods as as Thomas. Um Pretty soon you'll be able to find all that audio on the website, both as downloads and part of our streaming service. But we got to talking about the the the, the new school Thomas is involved with, and so I thought it'd be fun to bring him on. It's a little bit different than a lot of the other uh, classical schools out there even. So, but let's get to know you a little bit first, Thomas. Um, you've been teaching for 10 years now. Um, your background is history. Is history your favorite thing to teach in the classroom? You know, a few years ago, I would have said yes. Uh, history and philosophy were were my favorite subjects. The first school where I taught is um, a boarding school near Charlottesville. Uh, the seven years I was there, I had the opportunity to teach about a dozen different history and philosophy classes, and that was uh, that was what I liked to do. I had the opportunity to start teaching literature at my second school, which is what I've done for the last few years. And uh, after a lifetime of never really encountering much poetry at all, except through the music that I played with my family, uh, we play a lot of folk music together, a lot of bluegrass music. I had never really encountered the Western poetic tradition. And when I started teaching more on the English side of the humanities, I encountered uh, poetry that really transformed the way I thought about the classroom and the way I thought about my life. Uh, first, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and then on from there, especially the poetry of Robert Frost. And I really fell in love with teaching that. So um, my training is in history. A lot of my competencies are in that side of the curriculum, but uh, poetry is really my favorite thing to teach. Okay. Do you have a favorite uh, just personally or in the classroom when it comes to poetry? Uh, favorite poet or poem? Give me both. All right. If you forced me to choose, please don't. But if you <laughs> force me to choose, I'd say Frost uh, is my favorite overall in, in terms of poets. Uh, although Gerard Manley Hopkins is a kind of first love, it was the sound of his poetry that got me excited about poetry. You know, the way that he combines combines words together, combines sounds together, mm. the rhythms there, the kind of sprung rhythm. <clears throat> it was almost like an enchantment. Um, so Hopkins is a, is a close second, but Frost, I think, is the first one, mostly because of the way that he writes about our task in life, you know, our vocation in life. He's... Um, He's really a phenomenal poet when it comes to writing about work and yeah. especially how work and friendship, work and community are linked together. So I'd say push comes to shove. Frost is my guy. And if I had to choose one poem, it would be Two Tramps in Mud Time by Robert Frost. OK, that is not a Frost poem that I'm familiar with. So I'm going to have to look it up. Maybe I'll, maybe no, I'll put it, a, it, a link to yeah. it in the show notes. Yeah, two not tramps. to be too cute, but yeah, two tramps in mud time. Uh, okay. Not to be too cute, but it is it is off the beaten path, right? It's the road less traveled for frost poems, <laughs> um, but it's really phenomenal. And if if any of the listeners have not encountered that poem before, the best way to get it is out loud. 
And we were fortunate Robert Frost recorded a lot of his own poetry or other publishers recorded a lot of him reading his own poetry. Both Spotify and YouTube have you know, free versions of Frost reciting that poem. And I would highly recommend it. It's the way to get it. Okay, well, I'll look for some of those and to, to post in the show notes. Um, we we did a Hopkins poem just recently with uh, Christine Perrin. Um, I think you and I were talking uh, Starlight Night. So that was yeah. That was look a at the one. stars. Look, look up at the skies. Look at all yeah. the fire folk hanging in the air. Yeah, what a what a poem. So uh, that's that's great. I like I like it. Well, uh, that kind of leads us into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, folks who have been around Cersei for a while, especially they've been to our national conference. Uh, won't be completely unfamiliar uh, with the uh, integrated humanities program uh, that existed at, at the University of Kansas, I think in the primarily in the 70s, um, you know, led by uh, John Senior and, and Dennis Quinn and, and Frank Nellick. Uh, I think most people probably know about it through Senior's writings or possibly uh, one of their students, uh, James Taylor's Poetic Knowledge book. Um, and if they've been to our conferences, they've seen us try to emulate that, that our national conference that that um, was dedicating one of our times to a poetic, a poetic knowledge panel. Um, but that has a big part of what of what you're doing uh, with with the school. So if, I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of background on, on the program and, and how it's been an influence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Learning about John Sr.'s work uh, is part of what springboarded us into this project a few years ago. And when I say us, there's a group of teachers and priests and parents that's um, been collaborating together to help launch this school. Uh, a friend gave me Francis Bethel's biography of John Sr., John Sr. and the Restoration of Realism, which uh, or he told me about it. My wife bought it for me for Christmas one year. And it's this really enchanting account of that program, and uh, particularly of John Sr.'s role in that program. The Pearson IHP program was an attempt in the 1970s out at the University of Kansas to awaken the desires and the loves of first and second year college students so that they would have a desire to really enter into the fullness of the, the tradition that they were being educated in. Uh, senior and the other teachers in that program that you mentioned, uh, Nellick and Quinn, um, I guess there are a few things. Practically speaking, the school had a, a suicide problem at the time, which I didn't realize hmm. until recently. A friend showed me some documents about this. Um, there were some real emotional problems out at that school. And a lot of the students who were coming through that these three professors were teaching, they were trying to teach a great books style program, like the one that Senior encountered at Columbia when he studied under Mark Van Doren. They realized a lot of these students couldn't actually read the great books. And what they determined was they couldn't read the great books because they hadn't encountered the good books. And what they missed from not getting the good books and everything that comes before those, and when they say the good books, they mean the, the many colorful, beautiful, imaginative stories that a child should encounter, things like Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson and the tales of Charles Dickens and stories about Robin Hood. They even include, you know, Mother Goose nursery rhymes there. Mm -hmm. Those stories furnish a child's imagination with, with things um, and with vivid sort of emotional responses to things. John Sr. at one point said that it wasn't so much his students when they read the great books couldn't understand the meaning of words. They couldn't understand the meaning of things. And because mm -hmm. their imaginations were kind of barren, uh, intellectually, they were stunted, but even more importantly than that, emotionally, they were disconnected from what they were studying. 
And so there was there was no love, no fire, no enthusiasm for these beautiful ideas they were encountering. And so these professors in the 70s to try to solve the kind of uh, despair that they were encountering in their students, but also the sort of ennui that a lot of them had, they decided to give what they called a, um, a poetic education to the students. And that's not an education in poetry, um, although poetry was a big part of this program. A poetic education is an education that engages students on the emotional sensory level of experience. So just to give an example, instead of sitting down and studying star charts to learn about astronomy, they had the students go out with uh, other students in the program and the professors at night and look at the stars, like that Hopkins poem you mentioned. They, they would learn about the constellations by looking at them and hearing the stories of mythology told while they gazed at the stars. Um, or a, a, another example, instead of analyzing poetry first, uh, they, they learned a lot of poetry. Um, they had to memorize it first and they weren't allowed to read it. They had to just listen to it. They had to listen to other people reciting it. And then they would, as a group, learn how to recite these poems together. And the whole point of that program, of that approach, that mode of learning, was to instill wonder in the students. The program's motto was Nascanter in Admiratione, let them be born in wonder, which I learned recently, actually, a student recommended that motto. That came from one of the students in the program. And so the, the program was an attempt to awaken wonder in the students so that their delights and their loves would be fixed on what they studied in the future. And the program bore just really tremendous fruit. Um, and so hearing about this program, reading this book, uh, it led us into a sort of path, an inquiry into other places that have tried to do this kind of thing since the 1970s. And there are a few. And um, we thought there's a lot of, a lot of good advice in this kind of teaching, this kind of thing. Yeah, it's amazing how much that lack of imaginative foundation uh, can really play into things as students get older. We had several years ago, a school bought uh, a high school, a parochial high school brought, bought uh, several hundred copies of our Tales of Wonder, which are just traditional fairy tales, you know, with some questions thrown in. Um, and so I emailed, I was like, why? Why is the high, this high school buying this? And it was, a, it was a parochial school that had a lot of students transferring in at the high school level from, you know, public schools, wherever. Um, and uh, the, the person told me that they, we, we make the freshmen read these before the summer before, because they're coming in with no, no shared stories. You know, there's no cultural share, shared stories uh, and that lack of being able to think imaginatively. So we couldn't, couldn't start moving on to like meteor texts um, until, although, some might argue that the fairy tales are meatier than we realize, but, right. but they couldn't move into the, you know kind of their high school curriculum text because they couldn't even begin to talk about story with them. They just didn't have enough of it, which is tragic. But well, you mentioned right. uh, a few other schools. Um, there, there have been some schools that I think that are kind of the progeny of this program in some ways. Um, that, that I know have helped you along the way with, with St. Dunstan's. If you could maybe give us a little background on what's what's gone on with those. Right. So there are, there are several high schools and several colleges that are still operating in this tradition. Uh, the tradition of poetic learning, of um, a sort of wonder-based approach to secondary and, and then college education. In terms of high schools, there, there are really only two, as far as I know, that have based their whole approach on um, the kind of vision that John Sr. and the others at the IHP had. And those two schools are Gregory the Great Academy up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, 
and St. Martin's Academy in Fort Scott, Kansas. And they're they're both Roman Catholic, all boys boarding schools <clears throat> for high schoolers. I've had the opportunity to visit both places, and they are really beautiful, wonderful, inspiring places with a tremendous faculty and a great vision of education. Um, they do all sorts of neat stuff to to awaken the boys to wonder and to help them um, help their desires grow and help their desires uh, turn towards Christ and towards good, true, and beautiful things. Uh, Gregory the Great has been around for longer. It, it was founded in the early 1990s by a graduate of the IHP program. And they do all sorts of interesting things. Uh, they're really big on gymnastic education, which was one of John Sr.'s um, insights that until your body is engaged with the world, it's hard to get your mind engaged. St. Thomas Aquinas has a, a great adage that there is nothing in the intellect which did not begin in the senses. So, right, we experience the world through our eyes and our ears and our sense of feeling before we start thinking about it. And uh, this is, you know, I mean, this is in line with Plato and the Republic and the whole classical vision of the person. Um, you first encounter the world through your senses. Plato talks about this in the Republic chapters two and three. Um, well, so at, at Gregory the Great, they have the boys juggle. All the boys learn how to juggle. They're this incredible acrobatic troupe. Um, they ride unicycles. They juggle torches. They put on these great shows. And so the boys' senses are waking up to, to their bodies and to what it's like to to be an embodied soul in the world. Um, both Gregory the Great and St. Martin's have very robust farming programs, especially out at St. Martin's. They have a, a sustainable farm out there on a roughly 200 acre campus where the boys grow and raise and butcher a lot of the food um, that that school uses out there. And so they're, they're getting their hands dirty. They're doing really hard, strenuous work. Um, but they, as they do this, you know, the, the juggling and acrobatics, the farming, uh, serving in the Holy Communion service and the chapels, they have this sort of rich Christian culture that's developing all the time. They're singing. They sing all the time at these schools. The boys carry their instruments around with them. They learn lots of folk songs. They learn a lot of church hymns. And so they're training their hearts. The, these schools are training the hearts of the boys to respond to God's creation with joy and love and worship. And that kind of habitual uh, sort of cultural liturgy of singing all the time, like the New Testament tells us we should, um, that trains the boys to be these very joyful, capable people. They're really neat schools. So there are those two schools uh, in terms of high schools. Both of them have around 60 students. And then Wyoming Catholic uh, out in Wyoming has a, a similar kind of program at the college level. They're doing some really amazing stuff out there. They have a horseback riding program that uh, fills in some of the gaps on gymnastic knowledge. And also Thomas Aquinas College was a sort of the intellectual offspring of some of John Senior's students. So there are a few schools doing this kind of thing. Um, part of what led us to start our own project here in Virginia is there just aren't enough of these places that have a focus on desire, on wonder, on the imagination. Um, you know, there are only 60, 60 boys at each of these high schools, and we really need one of these for each region, if not more. Um, so that's a little bit about the connection between those schools and what we're doing. Well, your table um, caught my attention with its timber timber framing tools, um, among other things. And so I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, kind of what your plan is uh, with St. Dunstan's. I know y'all ha haven't opened for classes yet, but uh, y'all are looking for the right piece of land there in, in Virginia. But uh, but I'd like to hear kind of what the plan is for getting it started and what, and what kind of things you'll be doing that are similar to the farming and the juggling and the and everything else. <laughs> right yeah uh, you, you got to find ways to 
to get young men's bodies back into the real world. There's a great book on on liberal arts education that I think parents and teachers alike should be familiar with. It's called The Risk of Education, Discovering Our Ultimate Destiny by Luigi Giussani. And in that book, he makes the claim, which I think is just spot on, that education is an introduction to reality as a whole. An introduction to reality as a whole. And um, there are a lot of implications to that. If, if education is learning to encounter reality as it is, uh, you actually have to be in reality. He says this at one point in the book, you cannot understand reality if you are not in reality. And the unfortunate truth about a lot of young people right now is they're they're growing up kind of alienated from the physical world. They spend a lot of time in the virtual world. They spend a lot of time sort of indoors, sedentary, encountering things with their mind, but often their body is disconnected from, from things. And so we're hoping to provide a lot of opportunities at the school for boys to re-encounter the world and uh, to sense the wonder of God's creation and sense that it is charged with the grandeur of God by encountering things through their senses and through their bodies. And uh, so one example of this is we're trying to come up with really good work for the young men at this school to do that will help awaken their senses to the world and also train them to offer them themselves, their souls and bodies, their talents and gifts to God and to their community so that they can be resources to those. So um, part of that, we're trying to envision the whole school this way in this kind of Benedictine way uh, that prayer and work will pattern our days together at the school. Uh, we want the boys to learn um, or at least experience some of the traditional trades that are fading from our cultural memory. So things like woodworking and basic carpentry. Um, and one reason that those things are fading is a lot of the young men in our society don't have older men that they um, that they spend a lot of time around. So they don't pick up the kind of skills and the knowledge from older men around them that young men used to, for example, through apprenticeships or through uh, you know trade schools, things like that, or just from dad, right? Taking care of the house with dad. So uh, we're trying to build our, as much of our own campus as we can. Uh, there's a group of us that's been learning how uh, to timber frame, which is an old style of construction that relies on large beams uh, joined together with wooden joinery, uh, mortise and tenon joinery, rather than using a lot of factory produced materials. And so we're trying to harvest a lot of our trees uh, for the frames and turn them into beams and then put up our school building frames in this traditional style of construction. We want the boys to come and learn that kind of thing with us. So in our vision, the faculty and the students will work side by side early on to help make this campus a reality. They'll get a kind of apprenticeship to the faculty members who are helping to build the school. Um, but also later on, once the school is built out, the boys will continue to learn this trade uh, by, by learning some of these arts, timber framing. We're going to have a forge on campus. So the boys will get an introduction to blacksmithing. We'll have a nice wood shop. Um, we're hoping that the boys will use those skills for community service projects to help local local churches, local nonprofits build things. And so the, the main idea there is that um, young people learn best through real things, not just simulations of things, but real things. So if you want a young man to learn a trade, you actually have to invite him into the life of that trade, actually building things, not just uh, sort of practicing, but really, really building a, you know, building the frame for a house, for instance. Yeah, we spoke a little bit that there there are a few programs out around there now um, that are actually teaching these skills at the at the college or post you know post high school level. Um, I think you've actually been in contact with some of the folks from the one in Charleston uh, when it comes to timber framing. But for any parents out there who are thinking this sounds like um, 
antiquated skills, let me just assure you that the this type of construction is actually in, in high demand and and um, pretty can be pretty lucrative. Not that that's the 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 goal with high school, but these are these are uh, uh, like Thomas was saying, kind of some lost art at least at least stateside. Um, most of the people who still know how to do it are across the pond. Uh, but you spoke, you, you spent some time with Sam and learned some timber framing and did, did a couple projects with them, uh, guys from that school, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was working on a project in, in Virginia. There's a community building project where some of the students at that school and some of their instructors um, were attending as well. And I, I got to spend a few days working on a, a big frame with them and putting it up and talking with their instructors. And it was really inspiring to hear about what they're doing. That's at the college level. And those students are pretty committed to the trades, which is interesting. You know, they've they've kind of chosen a route. And so that college teaches both liberal arts courses and uh, traditional trades. Uh, at St. Dunstan's Academy, we're hoping to introduce the young men there to a variety of things, not assuming that they will, for instance, become carpenters or become farmers. We're also going to have a robust farm there. Um, we're going to introduce them to the culinary arts. The boys will work in the kitchen and help to prepare the food that they eat. Um, it's a lot of this kind of common arts stuff, right? We're not going to assume that they're going into those common arts trades, but we do want them to be exposed to those things because for too many young men, they assume, you know, the only way forward is going to a kind of conventional college. And we want to prepare the boys who are at our school for that as well. They will get a, a very good classical education at the school. Um, but we want them to think that there are other ways as well and to have the kind of exposure that might excite their desires for those things. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, when they graduate from high school, it's good for a young man to know how to do things like cook and repair his house and build some things for himself, because most young men are going to be part of a family and need to have those kind of practical common art skills to live a sort of uh, meaningful and productive life with those in their community. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how I can come help help spring up some of your first buildings and all that starts to happen, because. I mean, I want one of those mallets and just because I want one of those mallets, but also just uh, <laughs> something I'd like to know how to do, you know, to 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 improve some of those skills a little bit. Um, so it looks like a lot of fun. Uh, tell tell me a little bit more about the the what people might think of as the more academic side of the curriculum, um, what that program looks like. So you're talking students starting at what age for you guys? Uh, ninth to 12th grade. So this is high school. Okay. The school's going to be for high school boys. Um, the academic program will rely on mostly classical curriculum from the Western tradition. So our students will take Latin for all four years that they're at the school. They'll be learning Western history. They'll be hearing the great poets of the Western tradition around them as they go about their day. They'll be reading the literature of, uh, of the Christian tradition as they go about their business. Um, and so in some ways, the school will look similar to other classical schools. You know, the actual content of what we will be looking at will be the poems of Wordsworth and the stories uh, from Homer and the literature of uh, you know, the, the great post-Renaissance uh, vernacular writers, the kinds of stuff you, you, that you would encounter in a lot of classical schools. One difference is the mode that we will be looking at that material in. Um, there is a, a sort of truth about adolescent boys that I think most people understand and would recognize, especially teachers who might be listening to this, uh, this podcast or you know, parents who are living with the reality of a teenage boy around them, their bodies are a big deal. You know, they are going through this tremendously 
a disruptive developmental state where their their bodies are on uh, on overdrive and they tend to be most engaged and attentive when their bodies are also engaged and attentive and yet um just because of the history of education what it is most young men spend most of their days seated inside doing something that is highly intellectual and so what we're trying to do is is um think about our program with the the sort of nature and needs of the adolescent boys squarely in front of us and craft our program around the way that the teenage boys tend to learn best. And I've seen uh, I've seen a lot of boys schools that have sort of gimmicky ways of doing that. Um, we're trying to do this in a way that that makes sense for teenage boys, but also lets them get the fullness of their curriculum. So just some examples. We want the boys outside as much as possible. We want them out um, out in the light of things so that nature can be their teacher, to quote Wordsworth. Uh, they need to they need to be in the sunshine, they need to be in the fresh air, and they need to be able to move a little bit more. So we're planning to have a good number of outdoor classes. Uh, we want them outside all throughout the day. So we want them stargazing at night. We want them getting up and seeing the sunrise in the morning. We want them singing outdoors and playing outdoors and uh, sensing all the different lights and shades and sounds of the day uh, outside of the kind of um, uniform climate controlledness that indoor environments usually use, right? There's a lot of variety, a lot of wonder outside where things change throughout the day. Um, but also rather, rather than focusing primarily on the written word, we will focus a lot on the written word, but there's something that happens when, um, when great poetry, great music, uh, great books are read and recited aloud. There's something more engaging and more lively about our ears experiencing those things with our eyes. And so a lot of our program will uh, include things out loud, things that happen hmm. in community uh, out loud. So there will be singing throughout the day. A lot of our poetry will be recited. And our hope is to get the boys engaged in this stuff um, in more than an intellectual way. That's not to disparage the intellect, um, but to make sure that their senses are engaged as they're experiencing this poetry. Um, so just, just to give one example um, uh, of how what, this mode might look like. And I think a lot of teachers do this anyway, even if they're not at a boarding school that's patterned this way. But a, a friend of mine, um, Steve Nepper, who teaches poetry and literature at VMI, Virginia Military Institute, is, um, is a very talented poet. And he came to, uh, to one of my classes two years ago to present some of the poetry that he had composed. And he, he composes very much in the tradition of, of the great poets. He still uses a lot of meter and a lot of rhyme. He is a kind of classical um, composer of poetry. Well, yeah, he came and he read, he read some of his poems to my students outside on a spring day. And he brought the ones about springtime. So a lot of what he was reading about in his poetry was kind of going on all around us. One of those poems is called March Morning. And it's this beautiful poem that starts, the maple buds sprout tight bound nubs of burgundy, green scissors through the withered grass. The once trimmed shrubs shag out new licks of growth askew. So it's this poem about um, things coming to life outside, right? Uh, when we studied that poem, before we even started looking at that poem, I took my students outside to the maple trees that ran down the driveway to my school, which were all sprouting these, uh, these beautiful the purple buds, these these burgundy buds. What's interesting is from a, a distance that all looks brown, 
you can't actually see the burgundy on these particular maple trees until you get right up close. So before we got anywhere near that poem, we went and looked at the trees and spent 15 minutes just talking about all the things that the students noticed there and what they wondered about and what they hadn't seen before. And so we tried to get them engaged in the maple tree, you know, experiencing the maple tree before we started reading this, this really rich poetry about um, the beauties of the earth that were sprouting all around us. And there's this kind of great, um, this great ending to that poem is more in the Shakespearean line of sonnets. Uh, Steve ends that poem by saying, uh, how can we think of work or school now that each dewy dabs a jewel? And I guess the, the poem originated from him and his daughter one morning sort of giggling over the spring budding up as they were rushing around trying to get ready for work and school. And so we ended up landing that poem on this discussion of, you know, some things are more engaging and wonderful than even the productivity of what we're doing, right? Some things should be delighted in for their own sake, like a maple tree, right? Yeah. Uh, like the, yeah. the new life of the spring. And so that kind of approach that prioritizes uh, a sort of sensory embodiedness of things before getting into the intellectual rigor of the classroom is a lot of what we're trying to, to bring to bear in the way we deliver our curriculum. So it's it's both going to be a classical curriculum in its content, but also a more poetic curriculum in its mode, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. We talk a lot about mode uh, here, uh, you know, the appropriate mode for different things when it comes to teaching. And so um, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated that I, I, I did, I, I saw that you have a page that talks a little bit about on the website. And so I'm gonna read more about uh, how y'all are discussing poetic mode and um, maybe that'd be another time we could have you on for just a whole conversation about poetic mode, maybe someday with Matt. Um, oh, Matt and Alec and I were all at the conference with you and this kind of came up, this idea of, you know, um, we were just contemplating the, the quadrivium and the the oral of reading versus the, the you know, the the visual and, um, and, you know what are the distinctions that are happening there for the for the man and for the soul so we definitely should have another conversation about this uh, um yeah that sounds great I love that. the the two schools that are that that preceded you that you mentioned um are, are both uh catholic schools uh saint dunstan's is is anglican you know the, across the country when we talk about classical schools there are many that are you know tied to particular tra uh, faith traditions there are many that are um for lack of a better term, ecumenical or non-denominational, what what distinctives does does being uh, particularly an Anglican or or having a, a particular denomination of faith uh, attached with the school bring for St. Johnston's? Right. Well, this is actually a particularly fitting question for what we were just talking about the mode of education. Um, one of the great strengths of the Anglican tradition, of which I am a part, and I've been formed in it for the last decade or so. I I grew up in a non-denominational church. And uh, received from that upbringing a, a real love for the scriptures and a love for Christ. And uh, I gradually gravitated towards the Anglican Church for a variety of reasons. And one of them was the sort of richness of the liturgy, the Anglican liturgy, and its ability to engage uh, the whole person in the way that it delivered the Word of God and the sacraments. Um, you know, the, the, the music, the prayers— the postures, it's all very embodied, right? So I, I've, I've talked about this with some friends before. One of the more powerful experiences I had early on when I first came to an Anglican church, you know, when I when I was growing up in my non-denominational church, um, we never kneeled for anything, you know? We, we talked about kneeling in the Psalms, we read about it, uh, but we didn't ourselves really kneel. One or two people occasionally might if, if they felt like doing that. But 
Uh, the first time I walked into an Anglican church, we came to a, a formal confession of sin as a congregation, and we all got on our knees on the kneelers. And so our bodies started doing what our souls had, you know, we'd done so many times with our souls. And there's this kind of you know, rich link between our whole person and what we were trying to do to bring our sins to Christ and to receive his forgiveness. And so the Anglican liturgy, uh, some of the strong things about it for this program, um, it is very embodied and it requires changes of posture and it requires certain physical responses to uh, the rhythms of reading throughout the year. So the Book of Common Prayer, which is the, the main liturgical guide for the Anglican Church, uses a lectionary to take the congregation through a majority of the scriptures every year, every liturgical cycle. We go through you know, the main parts of scripture every year. And that rhythm of bringing the scriptures to the people at certain times in the church calendar is a, itself a kind of um, embodied practice, a kind of habitual thing that helps to transform the soul. And so for the boys who come to this school, the main way that Anglicanism will be shaping and forming them, you don't have to be an Anglican to go to St. Dunstan's. Um, we'll accept any any boy who's a, you know, a baptized believing Christian. Um, you know, we need to have a certain level of buy-in in order for this program to work. So if, if you're not sure you want to be a Christian yet, that's fine, but this program's probably not for you. But for the boys who come there, the Anglican tradition will be formative to them because they will be taught to respond to the word of God and the presence of God um, with their whole self. In this kind of daily rhythm, and the the main service main services of the Anglican Church are the daily office in the Book of Common Prayer, which is morning and evening prayer. Uh, there's a service for every morning and every evening with its own readings from the Scriptures, and then the the communion service, the Holy Communion service, and those three services that happen daily and weekly will have this sort of ongoing formative effect for the boys who are there. I'd say that's the most characteristic piece of Anglicanism. Uh, but you don't have to be an Anglican to attend St. Dunstan's. Well, on I encourage everybody to check out the website. There's a lot more about this on there, but also you can see beautiful rendering of what the of what the they're hoping for with the campus, um, uh, as well as the, the more about the academic program. Um, and if the websites, the website's very beautiful and nice to use. If that's any indication of of what's being what's important to the school, I think that's a that's a good. Um, Good indicator, but uh, I did want to touch on one more thing. Um, for most of our audience, the idea of sending kids to a boarding school is going to be a bit foreign. Literally, uh, you know, per, our, our audience is primarily American. Um, boarding schools have were even fading a few generations ago, and certainly are, are less in practice for most for most of the audience. Um, so, I just wanted to you know talk to you a little about you know why a boarding school um and and yeah i guess that would be the biggest question why that why a boarding school and and what do you see as the benefits of that yeah that, that's a huge question for families especially i think for families who are probably listening to this podcast um most people who have decided to go in for the kind of intentionality and thoughtfulness of a classical education especially you know, a Christian classical education, they tend to really care about their kids and to love them. And so the suggestion that you're going to take your 14-year-old 
and uh, you know send him away uh, my, my wife was talking about this yesterday you know her only exposure to the idea of boarding school growing up was through a, a Lindsay Lohan movie or maybe not Lindsay Lohan uh, some pop star I can't remember which one uh, who are the twins the Olsen twins yes um an, an Olsen twins movie and then the sound of music in both cases where a kind of wicked stepmother or future stepmother figure says I know what I'll do I'll send them to boarding school right, right. something you, do you don't love your kids and uh, sort of the opposite is true of why you would send your son to a school like this. Um, it doesn't make sense for everybody, but for some families, this this is a really good option because of a few different things. One, um, and I'd say the starting place is, is to think of it this way. Every young man has to grow up at some point. And every family agrees on this, right? Everyone assumes they're going to send their son away sometime. The question is, when is the right time? And our society is really anomalous about the way we do this. Um, we wait until about 18 years old to start sending our boys out to grow up. Uh, I, I mentioned in a talk I gave recently that the um, the average 17-year-old boy's schedule and what he does throughout the day looks actually remarkably similar to that of his 11-year-old brother hmm. and oftentimes also his 11-year-old sister. And those, you know, 11-year-olds and 17-year-olds aren't the same uh, physically, biologically, mentally. There are all these differences. And yet um, we wait until about 18 years old to start asking our boys to really grow up and take responsibility for themselves. And one of the side effects of that is, is often 14 and 15 year olds are ready to take responsibility for themselves, to, to have new challenges and new adventures. And they kind of sit still for a few years yearning for that. And uh, just to give a couple of examples uh, quickly from history, and then one that, uh, Brandon, you heard me talk about this at the conference this past weekend. Um, historically, just to, yeah, this, these are just anecdotes, right? Um, George Washington was 14 years old when he took his first full-time job as a surveyor, going out into the Western Virginia wilderness for uh, the governor and the Lord Fairfax. 14 years old, and this is Indian territory. This is this is a dangerous place, and he had some near run-ins. I mean, he was almost killed a few times as a 14-year-old. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, when he first applied to Harvard, was rejected because he was considered too old to start attending college. And he was either 15 or 16. I think he was 15 years old at the time. Uh, another great example, John Quincy Adams was either 11 or 12 years old when he became the de facto ambassador to Russia <laughs> because his French was better than the ambassador. And that was the court language in France. Like there are all of these examples. We could go on and on about this. Um, it was in all other societies really besides ours, it was normal to ask boys to start taking on the mantle of their mission earlier either the trade they were going to adopt or the vocation they were going to go, go into. You know, college was for 14 and 15-year-olds. The trades were for 14-year-olds because a 14-year-old boy has started to grow into his manhood. And by the way, um, for, for parents that do have teenage sons, I'd recommend a wonderful book about the kind of rites of passage and coming of age that I'm referencing here. It's called Leaving Boyhood Behind by Jason Craig. It's a really phenomenal book, uh, and it talks a lot about the need for boys at this age to start growing up. Uh, one other story though, I mentioned this at the conference and I'd like to bring it up here because I think um, there's some important uh, insights about young men from this story. There's only one story of our Lord's life in between his infancy and his adulthood. And that's the story of his family taking him to Jerusalem for the Passover in Luke chapter two. And in, in that chapter, St. Luke refers to Jesus as a paideon, a child, or he refers to him as the Pais Jesus, the, the child Jesus, or the boy Jesus, five times before they make it um, to this episode in Jerusalem. 
And in Jerusalem, when his parents leave after the Passover, our Lord stays behind, unbeknownst to them. He's 12 years old at the time, right? He's just a 12-year-old boy. And they get a days into their journey, a day into their journey, and they realize he's not there. They come back looking for him. Now, I mean, just to put this in perspective, Jerusalem's the largest city at this time and in this area. And Jesus has just stayed behind away from his parents. And naturally, they get really worried about him, right? But they find him in the temple after three days. He's been missing for three days. and uh, they come into the, the temple and they find him seated, which is the posture of the teacher at this time. You know, our teachers stand now. Teachers in the ancient world tended to sit. He's seated among the teachers and he's asking them questions and he's listening. And everyone there is amazed at his responses. Well, his parents come to him and Mary says to him, son, how could you treat us this way? Some translations say it that way. Some say, how could you do this to us? Didn't you know we'd be looking for you anxiously? And our Lord's response is so telling. He says, why did you search for me? Didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? And uh, the text says that he didn't, uh, his parents didn't comprehend these sayings, but he went back and was subject to them in all things. And Mary treasured these things in her heart. And it's significant that his mother would be the one contemplating this, right? Because um, every mother that has a boy around this age, or every mother who's thought about their son growing up, there is a kind of pain associated with thinking of your boy growing up. And it's natural for her to say, how could you do this? If my, right, you know, my right. son's nine right now, but I imagine if in three years he disappeared in New York City, I'd probably be worried sick. Um, but she treasures these things in her heart. She's attentive to these things. And then St. Luke says at the end of chapter two, I think this is verse 52, and Jesus by the way, he's no longer a child in that text. He's no longer referred to as the Pais Jesus. He's just Jesus. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. And there's something so telling about this. He has left his childhood behind. Um, if you want to read more about this, this is a lot of this is covered in Jason, Jason Craig's book. Um, but there's some things to notice there. One, he's 12, right? That's not the time we usually let our boys start growing up. But then the other thing is he's already started living into his ministry, his real vocation, his mission. And that's visible both in what he's doing in that story. He's teaching. He's amazing people in his teaching ministry. That's visible. Mm -hmm. But also the very form of the story is pointing towards Calvary. Um, I, I mentioned this at the conference, but this is, this is not the last time that our Lord will go missing in Jerusalem for three days while he's about his father's business. As a 12-year-old, he's already started living into that, um, that vocation, that he is... And this is very symbolic, right? The way that uh, St. Luke writes this. Um, but he started living into his vocation, and there needs to be a way for young men to start reaching out and doing the same kind of thing our Lord was doing there in Luke chapter 2. They need to have their own rites of passage, their own tests, their own trials. And boarding school is a great place for this to happen, because at a boarding school, you can bring together good mentors. Uh, you know, Jesus was seated among the other people, the other scribes, the other teachers from his society. You need to have good mentors for boys to grow up because masculinity has to be handed down from older men to young men. It's a social phenomenon. Uh, maleness is not. Maleness is biological, but masculinity has to be taught. It has to be modeled. So boarding school allows you to gather together these male mentors and a sort of band of brothers, right? The, the company, the cohort of like-minded young men who want this kind of exhortation to grow up. And you can have that troop, that brigade, there with the mentors who are teaching them, along with a lot of really good, meaningful experiences and challenges that give the boys a chance to rise to the occasion and embrace their own maturity. And all of this patterned around a community life that's rooted in the church. 
Uh, another way of saying that is there's a rich Christian culture available at an intentionally designed boarding school that isn't necessarily available in every parish. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that is because a lot of dads, like we spend our days working, right? We don't necessarily get to have our sons around us watching us model for them what Christian faithfulness looks like for a grown man. And for families uh, whose whose uh, family economy, whose home economy doesn't allow the 14, 15, 16-year-old boys there to be around male mentors often. This is one solution for getting them the kind of mentorship and rites of passage that they they need. It's not the only solution, but it is one of them. Um, And on top of that, a boarding school allows some small separation, a sort of beginning separation from the family so the boy can learn how to take the mantle of his maturity and his responsibility onto himself for a time. And we all think this is important, right? Because a lot of us talk about sending our sons away to college or sending our sons out on their adventures to grow up. The question is, what's the right time to do that? We think, you know, boarding school is a great way to start doing that in a limited way. Yeah. We talked a lot about that last week while you were there and, 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 and put, um, the examples you just shared. Um, and then the, the giving of challenges that maybe even ask a little more of them than, than they know they can do. Um, I can, I can hear people, you know, saying, well, you know, that, that's, that was Jesus, right. At 12 years old. <laughs> um, uh, but, but I think, but I think there's a couple things in it. One, we see that among other, uh, saints and heroes of the faith as well, that, that things are, things are being done at a young age, uh, certainly David. Um, uh, and then even, even just looking at the story of Christ, even if you can say, well, that was kind of an exception because it's Christ. But there's a whole day that goes by. They don't notice he's gone. So at the very least, at 12 years old, <laughs> he was allowed to run up and down the the pilgrimage of people leaving, yeah, leaving town, caravan, right? right? And kind of fend for himself for the day. And so th- there's definitely that. Um, I think I mentioned to you, I've been listening recently to uh, Mansfield Park, uh, the Austin novel. And it struck me that often when we discuss those novels now, we think about, wow, it's crazy that they were trying to marry their daughters off at 16 or 17, although maybe not so crazy. But in that one, she's, she's pushing her uncle to help her brother get on a ship at a low level sail as a sailor. And he's like 14 or 15 years old. Right. So that he was going not just apprenticing, but apprenticing on a ship halfway around the world from his family. Um, and that's how you that's how you grew in that profession, right? And the same with most with most professions back then. If you were going to be, have a profession and be an apprentice, that's when you got started. So right. Well, and, and I think your point's really good, Brandon. That um, you know, it, you could look at the story of our Lord and say, oh, that's Jesus, right? He's God. I actually think it's is more of a a reason for us to take this idea seriously. Our Lord is fully God and fully man, right? Para homo right. vera deus. If even God incarnate has to have this kind of experience to grow up, right? And I I say have to, I'm not saying it it couldn't have happened another way, but he does have it, right? Right. Um, Even he has to be temporarily separated from his domestic life and enter into the trial, the test, in the midst of the guild that he's going to join, pass that test and then be reincorporated into the body of mature men. Those are sort of the stages of a uh, rite of passage. If even he has to do that, um, I think that says something about our young men also. And, and, you know, of course, most other cultures have realized this. You know, since we were talking about the poetic mode, I shouldn't leave this out. The best way to to think about this, I think, is not by sort of this abstract analysis that a sociologist would do of coming of age and rites of passage. Um, the best thing is to experience some stories about it. Great example is Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. If you've not encountered that story and you have a son at home who's getting towards his teenage years, 
I would strongly encourage you to read it. It's really, there's a lot of wisdom in that story. It's uh, about a young man who comes from a, a, a very wealthy family and he he's not in good shape um, for a number of reasons. He's, for lack of a better term, a spoiled brat. And um, he, he ends up falling over on the first two pages, falling over the side of the ship that he's on because he tries to smoke a big cigar with the men in the saloon and it makes him sick. And he gets scooped up by these surly fishermen um, who decide they, they don't have time and money to take him back home. He's just going to have to wait out the season with them on the ship. And it's this really fascinating look at how this young man is transformed by life with these grown men fishing on the high seas. Uh, if you've not read this book or encountered it, and you have boys at home. It's a great read. Um, it's the best the best way, I think, to start thinking about rites of passage. Also, the works of Anthony Esselin are a really helpful way of starting to think about this. Um, he has one called Defending Boyhood that's a really inspirational, fun read. Uh, that I could also recommend to parents who are listening to this. Okay, well, I will try and get all these linked up in the um, in the show notes for sure. I think I mentioned to you too that I'd have to look for it again. But the uh, the the story of the boys, I think they were they were teenagers at a board at a school, all boys school. I'm not sure if it was a boarding school or not, but an all boys school who stole one of the school's boats, like just to go out sailboats, just to go out like joy sailing. And got caught up in a storm and shipwrecked and were lost for like a year and a half or something like that. Um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, but lived and they got them. Yeah. And they, it's, it's sort of the, the counter to Lord of the Flies, right? Because, right, right. They don't kill each other yeah. off. They actually form community and work together and, and survive. Yeah, and all of them survive. And they even do things like make athletic fields on this island yeah, yeah, where, they, yeah. well, where they're shipwrecked. I mean, they make this kind of beautiful life. And still end up getting saved. Yeah, it's significant that they came from a religious school, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. Went, um, they had a shared, they had a shared community people. before they got lost together. Um, right. Yeah, and I think I read in the story that they um, they they were rescued and then and then promptly arrested for stealing the boat when they got. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's there's something in a young man that yearns for adventure, right? And uh, and if they have the opportunities, they can usually do some really amazing things. Well, thanks for for being here with us. This was a, a great conversation. I do. I am going to try and find a way to get us back together talking about the poetic mode because that's just. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Maybe have a couple other couple other folks join us, but uh, we should do that in, in the yeah, next. Yeah, that sounds great. I was I was teasing uh, Matt Bianco about this at the at the conference. I told him that we need to be doing mo- more of this, but more in the poetic mode. That's um, right. He that's right. A couple, he gave a really great talk on the poetic mode out at the conference in Ohio. And uh, if if any of you listeners have access to that file when it comes out, I'd encourage you. Well, I've got to show him an actual bard owl because he, apparently he only knows it through the poem. By uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna work on that too. Well, thank you again for joining us, uh, Brandon. This is great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, if you want to discuss this or any quiddity episode, you can join the new Cersei Circle uh, and continue the conversation for this and other Cersei podcasts at Cersei.Circle.so. It's free to join. Uh, and unlike social media's penchant for endless scroll, uh, we want this to be a place to slow down and have meaningful conversations. So we're we're kind of migrating our whole um, podcast ecosystem over there for conversation. And there'll be a There'll be a link to that uh, in the show notes, as well as links to everything we've discussed and to St. Dunstan's Academy website. Um, I know that there's, uh, if, you have, if you have questions about that, um, you can contact uh, uh, Thomas. So those will all be in the show notes. But thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Systems of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. 
You can send your comments and questions to podcast at searchinstitute.org and join us next week for another episode. Be sure to check out the other shows on the Searcy Podcast Network. <laughs>